You're listening to Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's regular podcast about science fiction in various media. I'm Alex Fitch, and on this week's show, I'm talking to one of the UK's most famous composers, whose seminal concept album from the 1970s adapted a classic 19th century work of speculative fiction. To wit, if I was to play the following 10 seconds of music... then anyone of a certain generation would know exactly who I was talking about. Jeff Wayne first released The War of the Worlds in 1978. An immersive combination of music, narration, songs and sound effects that brought H.G. Wells' tale of alien invasion to life for anyone with a turntable and a bit of imagination. Last year, Wayne re-recorded the album with a new narrator, Liam Neeson, replacing the original's Richard Burton, and a new cast of singers and musicians, including this time Gary Barlow, Joss Stone, and the lead singer from the Kaiser Chiefs. Here's my interview with Jeff Wayne about the cinema release of his film of the 2012 tour of The War of the Worlds. To get you into the mood, here's Liam Neeson's introduction from the new album, The War of the Worlds, The New Generation. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched by intelligences which inhabited the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this Earth with envious eyes And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. talking today because in about a fortnight's time there's going to be some cinema screenings of the most recent tour of War of the Worlds The New Generation. Thinking about this new tour 
I mean, obviously, the visual elements have been an important part of the album right from the beginning with the art that came with the release. But since you started touring the production first with the the re-released version of the original CD and then the re-recorded version last year, obviously doing the stage production has been something that you've had to think about carefully. And now, obviously, the cinematic presentation, something even more carefully still. Yes, indeed. Uh, Each production that we've performed in the arenas, whether it's been the UK or we've been as far away as Australia, New Zealand, various European countries, uh, they each take uh, between a year and about 14, 16 months to prepare. Whereas this last one that we completed in January, uh, which, because it was built around the new generation uh, album that I recorded and everything that flowed from it, this new production was built around, took just under two years. Mm. We started about a few weeks after we completed our previous tour, which ended just before Christmas in 2010. So other than a, a break over the Christmas period from January 2011 until we started rehearsals uh, early November of last year, it was continuously uh, being prepared. Mm. And thinking of the visual elements, obviously you have CGI projections on a massive screen behind the performers on stage, and then you have mechanical elements such as a recreation of one of the Martian tripods. I guess creating um, CGI versions of your conceptualized version of War of the World started um, back in the late 90s with the computer games and have developed as the last uh, decade or so has gone on. Well, it's, I think there's it's a common thread since I've started with my uh, musical version of the War of the Worlds when the, the album, the original album, first came out in the summer of 1978. We had, um, it was in the era of the black final disc, so we had a, a gatefold booklet that had uh, paintings that we commissioned to try to grab the major moments within the story that we felt were appropriate uh, to include with our package so everything that started off life in that original period has survived the, the course of time. Mm. Although when we started touring uh, in 2006, we had also spent about a year and a half developing original images into uh, CGI sequences. And then in this last production, the, the CGI was completely updated, almost two hours worth. So it's been an evolution, not a revolution, but it certainly has had a continuous thread. Even the computer games. We had out uh, a very basic computer game in 1984 for the Sinclair Spectrum, whereas around 1998, when DVDs and the technology had increased, we had uh, a double DVD uh, built around not just my musical score and, and the script as it was then, but again, all the images that had that had evolved from the very original recording and the the booklet that accompanied it. Mm. Really from the point in time when we started working on CGI from a filmic point of view and then our tours, it really was from around that 2004 period where giant strides have uh, taken place. And as I said, the, the tour we just completed had pretty much entirely new CGI uh, created because one of the reasons for the, new generation album and production was that uh, when I finished the 2010 tour, 
I I went back and listened to the original recordings I did with Richard Burton and reread the script that we worked on with him and the other guest stars. And it reminded me how much we had initially recorded, but mostly because of the black vinyl disc era when you had just a finite amount of time, obviously, on each side of what was a four-sided production. Mm. Uh, A lot of really rich material didn't make it. And it was really after my 2010 tour in rereading it all, I thought, you know, if I had the opportunity to create a new recording as well as the next production of the live show, I would go back and consider the content that was originally recorded. So if you jump forward to where we are now, uh, Richard Burton's performance was finite and he passed away in 1984. So heavy hearted as it was uh, to make the decision, I had to make that decision to move on and to hopefully attract somebody of equal stature Mm. Uh, to take over the role of this journalist who had, in the story that H.G. Wells created, had survived a Martian invasion in 1898 and is recounting his story of survival some six years later. And it, it really, that was the trigger for committing to doing the new generation, both in, in a recording and uh, production form. Uh, and just as a statistic to give you an idea, uh, Richard Burton's performance either in the album or when we brought him back to life for our tours, he had 74 sequences, whereas Liam Liam Neeson, as the journalist, has 90. Mm. And all the other characters have, in one form or another, expanded material. And that triggered off me re-examining and putting under the microscope my original score. So there's new musical content that's been entirely re-recorded, re-scored, mostly in the modernity of comparison comparisons with rhythms and grooves and certain types of sounds that were very much the forefront of the mid-70s, whereas today we're in a completely different era of production techniques and styles of of playing that uh, the new productions all bear the fruit of of that. So everything to do with The War of the Worlds was put on the sort of under the microscope, re-examined and and reinterpreted. Mm. Because I guess with the the 2006 tour, um, using Richard Burton's uh, existing voiceover, it was very much a challenge to think, how on earth do we animate him? And you got around that by doing a sort of CGI hologram, mixing one actor's performance um, with sort of CGI elements. But at least with Liam Neeson, you can actually record him and film him with an eye of how will this be presented on stage and how it will be projected behind the stage as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, we're working with a, we were fortunate to attract Liam. We're working with a living actor, obviously, whereas Richard, uh, we had his original recording for the album, but we didn't have anything uh, that we had to do with a visual performance. In fact, he he wasn't animated for the first tour. Uh, What we had was a talking head, a three-dimensional talking head that occupied its own space above the stage, uh, sort of the stage right, if you look at it. So the CGI elements were uh, projected and remain projected on a 100-foot wide screen that's about 25 feet tall. And the the animated sequences uh, ran in perfect sync to the live performances that we as musicians or the live performers, which is every character other than that of the journalist, uh, 
were performing. So every, everything about the production is in perfect sync hmm. uh, in the same way a, a movie would be synchronized with all of its elements. Richard's performance was also synchronized, but it was this talking head. It was from 2007 when we did our second tour that we took that talking head and uh, completely reproduced it uh, with what was at that point very cutting edge holographic techniques and computer modifications because we were working to still imagery of, of Richards and an actor that, so to speak, did Richard Burton. Mm. Not so much in the way he looked, but his inflections. We didn't need his voice, but we needed to film the way Richard sort of breathed and uh, his facial expressions. And then they were all computer generated from that point with specialists working. One person I remember working on just the hair, another one on the skin, eye coloring, uh, micro prosthetics for the nose and the lips. And eventually by the end, uh, after many months, we had Richard Burton in holographic form. So between the first and the second tour and right to the end of uh, our, our 2010 tour, uh, it, that's how Richard was seen and heard. Whereas Liam, and I should add, Richard was seen only in that one way as this mm. talking head uh, suspended above the stage, about approximately 11 feet high by eight or nine feet wide. So it's an omnipresent <laughs> uh, performance uh, that's obviously larger than life. In working with Liam and because of the ability to, to plan out in advance with a living actor, uh, I, I, on every production, in fact, but with this new production, we cre I created a new storyboard, which every frame, essentially, and every second, every word spoken or sung, every element is a column for, and it shows you exactly what's going on. In the same way, like a, a storyboard for a movie would be created, albeit that this was a live production. Uh, and it allowed me to break down into three areas the way we could produce Liam. So, for example, in the space that Richard Burton occupied with his talking head or his holographic head from the second production on, uh, Liam occupies a similar size space. But what you see is much greater detail. It's not just a head. You see him standing, sitting down at a, a desk. You see him use props. And, of course, by being a living actor, he looks very much in the 3D context, very real. Mm. So that's one out of three. Then. A second one, which uh, is probably the, the most exciting of the three, is he's seen in full body on stage, uh, not on his own either. He's interacting with the other characters who are singing and or acting with him or around him, including little, there's only a few of them, but they're little touches, which we didn't realize the impact it would have on our tour because the, the quantity of forum posts saying or asking, how did they do that? And what I what I mean by that is that there's a scene with an artilleryman who has escaped the first wave of the Martian invasion, which mm. begins on Horsell Common in, in Woking, Surrey. And he's, he's sort of a bit bloodied and disheveled, and he's, he's sort of crawling into what he thinks is an empty house, not realizing that the journalist is, is there. And the journalist sees him and takes pity on him and offers him a drink. And you see Liam, uh, holographically, obviously, but you see him pouring a drink and offering it to him. Next thing you know is he's handing it to, in this case, Ricky Wilson, who was our artilleryman on this last tour, uh, and he hands him the drink. And suddenly there's Ricky drinking it very much as a physical drink. And 
we have a few other moments like that where we've been able to use the best of technology without overkill, just subtle little things, but we had no idea how impactful it would be with the audiences. So that's the second of, of three. And the third is that he was filmed against a green screen and a range of scenes uh, to be incorporated within the CGI, which is on this 100-foot wide screen uh, where all of our new animation was prepared and projected during the, the performance. Mm. Thinking of the original album, even before you produced the tour, it's obviously um, kind of like a film in the sense that it creates scout soundscapes in your mind that suggest landscapes, suggest the Martian creatures and so on. And I, I wonder if you kind of see yourself in a filmmaker in a way, albeit one who doesn't primarily work with visuals. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a composer, arranger, producer, and I, I conduct all the tours. When I composed and produced this in, in the 70s, I was hoping that if I did my job right and all the passion and, and feeling that I had for H.G. Wells' story would come out as I had hoped, it would create a film in the mind of the listener. That's mm. what I had hoped for. I, I couldn't have told you at the time how successful that may or may not have been. I couldn't have told you that 30 some odd years later, I'd be chatting to you about, yeah. you know, a live production that's now going to be seen in cinemas. But uh, that was my starting point. Since the tour started, I took on the additional role of being the creative producer. I'm the one that comes up with the, a wish list of ideas for each production. We have a fantastic team who are very much focused in live entertainment, and they have storyboards that I give them, and we discuss new ideas that might get incorporated into the next production. Some of them are good ideas and are just unfortunately ridiculously uh, unrealistic in terms of a touring event because we don't sit down more than two or three nights in any one city. So you have to plan it on the basis of the way uh, the majority of our tours are. Is you're in one city one night and you're mm. performing somewhere else the next. Uh, that limits some things that if it was a, in a uh, you know, a, a venue where you're cited for a long run, then it opens up wholly different opportunities. Uh, and then there are other ideas that sound great on, on paper or the way I describe it. And then they cost it out for me. And they said, in your lifetime, you will never see this particular one. <laughs> it's just too expensive. Um, eventually we come down to those that are, that will work, those that we can afford. And they then get developed and, uh, executed by the experts in each area, which ranges from animation to illusion, special effects, pyrotechnics, uh, and everything in between. Mm. It's interesting that your album has just continued to attract new audiences and new fans over the, you know, the 30 odd years, like you say, since it was first released. And yet the, the concept album as a whole seemed to be something that flourished very much in the 1970s, thinking also of the work of, say, Vangelis and Mike Oldfield, but then kind of disappeared except as the soundtrack for movies. It, it seems a little bit weird that, you know, when people increasingly have access to digital music all the time, there shouldn't be an aspect of album making that doesn't encourage sort of soundscapes and imagination beyond, you know, the backdrop to lyrics. I think you're right. Um, it's an interesting thing because ever since The War of the Worlds came out, I've heard the term, and I was familiar with it anyway, of, in quotes, the concept album. Mm. I never actually thought that's what I was creating. 
I otherwise I would have called it my concept album of the War of the Worlds, whereas <laughs> I called it my musical version. I felt I was interpreting a piece of literature to the best of my abilities in in in, in music, in arrangements, uh, and all that it accompanied with it, including the story, um, of course, because that's where it all started. Uh, so I, every time I've discussed what concept albums mean, uh, I sort of cheekily perhaps throw back and say, well, what about Mozart with all of his operas? There's no electricity in his <laughs> lifetime. But if there had been, if there had been record companies in his day, would he have been writing operas or concept albums? Because <laughs> they all contain stories. They all contain fantastic emotional music that you can listen to and imagine in your own way what they mean. So... Um, that's what I've always thought. Uh, and a good song in its three-minute form, is that a concept single then? <laughs> Maybe. You know, it's, <laughs> how do you want to look at it? So uh, I just carry on my, my merry way uh, with the War of the Worlds and what I feel it, it was what motivated me. But I do think, coming back to your point, that you would have thought in today's world there's more opportunities to, to marry the sight and sound and tell a great story through that, uh, that approach. Maybe the world we live in, which is so fast and there's a zillion things happening all around us at any one time, maybe the speed of the world doesn't give people ideas that maybe this should be explored further. Mm. Ever since that first tour of the album in 2006, you've been asked the question about whether there ever would be a full-length version as a film, whether animated or not. Has this new tour made that possibility any closer, thinking of you know the, the filmed backdrops that you've done with Liam Neeson and other members of the cast? I, I think there's no doubt that had we not done what we're calling the new generation, hmm. our animation would have stayed in context to the best of what we did between 2006 and 2010. The standard of CGI that we have in the new production um, has, I think, moved on in the same way that animation in movies has uh, moved on. It, it's almost unrecognizable. And, of course, the, why wouldn't it? Technology has moved on in every aspect of our lives. Uh, my dream, in truth, when I completed The War of the Worlds was firstly to see whether I'd even get a release. The contract that I had with CBS Records didn't even guarantee me a release, and I had to fund approximately two-thirds of its cost. Wow. They had 30 days to make a decision after I handed it in. And when 30 days was up, I got a call where I was asked to give them another 30 days because they weren't sure. <laughs> after that second 30 days, they were sure, and they gave me a great uh, sort of exposure and marketing that allowed singles on the album uh, to really be exposed to the public, and it, it took off. It took off instantly, not just in the UK, but in many countries of the world. So my first hope was achieved. Uh, my second big dream, which has never changed, is that I've always felt it had a natural life uh, as an animated feature film. Mm. In 2004, we had worked out an arrangement with Paramount Pictures uh, to actually, it's the only set of rights my father and I never acquired from the estate of H.G. Wells because they had long been sold off to Paramount. And uh, with an arrangement in 2004, we now have the rights to make either an animated feature film or TV series or both. Mm. Um, 
And that's why in 2004, in advance of the tours happening or beginning, uh, we were working with an animation team creating models of our machines and the Victorian architecture and the things that would be the appropriate first stages to developing it. What I didn't know exactly at that point is that in the summer of 2005, we would also be working on and see, seeing re- release uh, uh, a repackaged and remixed original album mm. in very many different formats. And the main double CD uh, hit the UK charts. And rather than being a good, a, a good little sort of um, sort of response, which is what Sony, which was what CBS used to be, um, thought as a catalog item, as, as an album that had done remarkably well over the years, those who had followed it originally would be interested in this uh, updated mix, new packaging and everything that came along with it. Nobody anticipated there would be resting at the, the upper ends of the top 10 UK album charts for 11 weeks and stayed mm-hmm. in the album charts uh, from June to uh, the end of the year. And they ran out of stock twice. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have knocked off on one week Coldplay and another week James Blunt for the number one album spot. <laughs> and we wound up with another club hit. It became the number one catalog album of the year as well. So suddenly there was this rebirth rather than just ticking over over the years as it had. Um, and it was from that that instead of staying with our animation team with the goal of this animated film, uh, it wasn't even a tour. It was a one-off concert that I was asked to conduct at the Royal Albert Hall the following year, around April of 2006. And I had only ever conducted as a guest conductor uh, a, a, a small amount of things over the years, uh, like with the LSO and choir at the Albert Hall. I did our two main singles that up to that point had been great successes for us and a few other things on television, but I've never... I had never conducted the complete work. And of course, hmm. as a musician, it's, it, it was a wonderful opportunity. So I grabbed it. It wasn't meant to be this, what became this large-scale multimedia uh, extravaganza. It was a concert rendition with guest artists, but just in like tuxedos and standing up when it was their turn to, to, to participate and sit down when it wasn't. And it sold out in the, when it was announced, it sold out in about two hours. And, the box office contacted our promoters to say, "Are you, just to let you know uh, that not only did this show sell out in about two hours, but we have enough ticket demand for another 10 or 11 shows, but we don't have any other dates to offer you that would make sense. They were so far apart. And it was at that point that our promoters here said, do you have any anything that would take this from a concert rendition into uh, a wider type of, of show that we could place in the arenas because we think you could do very well in six or seven of the major arenas plus the one show at the Royal Albert Hall. And I had been working with a team uh, without any target of dates separate from the animated film on a large scale multimedia presentation, which out, which didn't have, as I said, any target of dates. It was, I had a lot of models fi- uh, filling my recording studio and it was that which I said, well, as a matter of fact, if you fancy coming over to see what I've got, we might be able to adapt this for what you're talking about. So they all trundled over, saw what I had in in, in these models. I showed them the test images of 
the animation, which was moving along really nicely. Uh, and I had the first of my storyboards. And they said, if you can make this happen in time, let's do it. And uh, I, I had my little team uh, to discuss this with, and it was decided to go for it. And exactly as they said, they offered it out to the six or seven arenas, and they sold out almost immediately. And by the end of that first tour, it was 15 arenas in the UK and Ireland. And it was from that point on that um, I've been fighting Martians ever since <laughs> in the live arenas of many countries of the world. And the animation and the team has grown, but through the demands of the production, always keeping an eye that at some point... Uh, I hope to achieve that very first dream uh, of seeing it as an animated feature film. Because it occurs to me that since, you know, the tours are selling out, the concerts are selling out, that even if you didn't want to work with a studio in funding it, you could just set up a crowdfunding exercise and probably fund the entire movie two times over via Indiegogo or some other website like that. Well, you, you know, you've raised another good point there, Alex, because I've seen, as, as well as my, my little team, the cost of animation hasn't been going up. It's been actually going down. If you work with um, heavily experienced animators and special effects people, but not through the big studio system. So while, I mean, I only finished touring in, in January and the, the next day after coming home, we then began the mixing of what is now going into cinemas. And then mm. later this year on DVD and on TV, the day after I finished that, I, I had been commissioned to compose the music for a new TV series that's starting in mid-April, going out on Sky. Nothing to do with the War of the Worlds. So it's literally only in the last couple of weeks that I've suddenly settled down to uh, a slower pace. Mm. But that what you raised is exactly how, in my mind, I would like to have a go at doing it. Because aside from the major studios being based in the United States, to me, I fell in love with a very dark Victorian tale of British work. And although I'm a Yank, I've lived here over two thirds of my life. Mm. Uh, all my children were born here. I just have always felt passionate about this particular story, sounding, feeling, looking, and made by as many Brits as possible. So that's the route I intend to, to, uh, to follow. And I, whether I'll succeed remains to be seen, but, uh, thank you for that thought because it's one that I agree with. Mm. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and it was wonderful talking to you. And um, it's it's great that the concert tour is being uh, brought to a whole new audience through uh, the language of cinema. It, thank you. Yeah, it, you know, it's a great opportunity from my point of view in the War of the Worlds because uh, this is the first time cinemas, I mean, the whole sort of um, digital cinema for musical events area has been developing, I guess, over the last five years. And it's the first time we'll have had a chance to be seen not just here in the uk but it's it's already sold i know to a range of other countries mm. some of them have never had the album uh, released there or certainly where we haven't toured so it's hopefully going to widen the awareness of it it's a great opportunity which uh, time will tell in the very near future how it's received so uh, my fingers are crossed for that and uh, i know that the production that was filmed at the o2 was is the most current one and everything that represents the new generation cool thank you very much all right my pleasure nice to speak with you yeah you too the film of last year's tour of the war of the worlds is being released in uk cinemas on april the 11th and april the 14th for more information please go to www.thewaroftheworlds.com
cinema.com. Reality Check was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, was recorded at the University of Brighton and is a Panel Borders production. If you listened to the previous episode of this show, where I was talking to Martin Gooch, the director of The Search for Simon, and one of its stars, Doctor Who actress Sophie Aldred, then you've got under a week left to help contribute to the Indiegogo campaign to fund Sci-Fi London's first feature film. Please go to thesearchforsimon.com and click on the Indiegogo link, where there are all sorts of incentives to become one of the film's funders, including a ride in a Sherman tank. And there'll be a new episode of Reality Check online soon. Thanks for listening.